from uh, comics like this one that's on screen now, where basically someone writes up a Christmas list, and I'll just be reading this, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, that's what I should do too. And so I, it wouldn't be quite as long as this one. Because of my focus on my Christmas lists, Christmas Day became all about me and the things that I wanted. You know, and not just the day itself, but even the anticipation towards that day was all about me. Now, being the only child, I did get a lot of what I wanted, you know, not everything, but the window of time when I would be happy with whatever gifts I received started to get a little bit smaller each year. You know, that, that happiness, that joy that you get from getting what you want, it started to get a little bit smaller each year. And by the way, I think I've uh, referenced Calvin and Hobbes more times than I've referenced John Calvin this year, but, you know. Anyway, all right, why is it that as we grow up, we're not as overwhelmingly happy from receiving gifts? You know, is it because it's just harder to be an adult? Is that what it is? Yeah, maybe. You know, you might be feeling it even as you grow older, especially as you graduate from high school, especially as you enter into new phases of life, raising children, whatever it might be. But the reality is, as we get older, we realize that just getting what we think we want doesn't necessarily satisfy the true desires of our hearts. The emptiness still remains, and we go on in search of more. Like, have you ever noticed that the most selfish people in the world who seem to be able to gather as much as they want are often the unhappiest? And in contrast, the most selfless people in the world, despite owning much less in material wealth, they seem to have some sort of an otherworldly peace this peculiar peace that transcends all understanding. Now here's a verse, the verse that we've read today, that's been understood without any knowledge of context by many young Christians who might, be, who might only have a surface level understanding of the Bible and its context. And if this is you, that's okay. You know, if you've heard this before, this verse before, and you don't really know what the context surrounding it is, that's okay as well. You know, we all start somewhere, even if we're older Christians as well, and though it's not okay for us to remain there with a shallow understanding of the Bible and its context, it's about where we continue on and where we end up. Okay, so Jeremiah 29, 11, if you can read with me. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And perhaps you've heard this verse before. I've heard it quoted many times. I've seen it on motivational style posters, like the one that you see on screen right now. Very flowery, very encouraging, optimistic. But who is this verse about? A lot of the time, our tendency in life is to believe that we are the main characters of our lives. We tend to see other people as peripheral. We, this plays uh, out quite often in the way that we treat other people the way that we think about people, the way that we lack empathy towards strangers even, and the way that we believe that our issues and our well-being is of greater importance than someone else's. It even extends to our faith. We like to believe that God exists solely for us, that everything about God and our church is actually for our sake, and Christianity to us becomes a little bit more about self-actualization than it does about self-denial. Now, we might not say it out loud like this because it sounds ridiculous. It sounds crazy and selfish, but we demonstrate it by the way that we live our lives. Perhaps if you examine your life, you can see what it says about your faith. 
So who is this verse about? I can remember really early on in my Christian walk, this verse being quoted like a motto or some sort of a personal slogan or something. And at the time, the NIV translation was the most popular. And so it read something like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And this translation word choice, prosper, you know, it made all the difference in a lot of people's young minds. It made all the difference in my mind, in the minds of my friends, as each of us, we all had all sorts of different thoughts in our imagination about what prospering really meant, what prospering looked like for us personally, whether it's in our desire for money, like what you see on screen, or for a relationship that we could rely on, or for whatever security that we're after. That's what prosper meant to each of us. But is it really the fault of the translators who took the word prosper and gave it to us, and then we took it and ran? We could still very well do the same with the CSB's well-being or the ESV's welfare. You know, whatever word that we choose to use, reasoning that our well-being and our welfare, it might include a particular number of zeros in our salary. It might include, you know, whatever, fill in the blanks. Is it the fault of the Apostle Paul that athletes, that celebrities, that all sorts of people wear things like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, like it's some sort of a superstitious magic charm that protects them, that helps them to win a game? Our misunderstanding of verses like this and our lack of desire to read the rest of Jeremiah to figure out what on earth this verse is even talking about has less to do with the translation, translation choice, even though that is important as well. But it speaks more about our own heart's desire, our own heart's contentment in things that are me-centered rather than God-centered. We love when the verse ends with us, not when it ends with God. So who is this verse about? This was at the time of the Babylonian captivity of Israel. Okay, we talked about this in a sermon last year, last March. Uh, it was in a sermon titled A Brief History of Subjugation, if you were around for that one. And it was called the Babylonian captivity because Judeans from the kingdom of Judah were taken captive into Babylon after being defeated in war. And the Babylonian captivity, it speaks about this misplaced self-belief and this overestimation of themselves that they could get themselves out of whatever mess that they had made. And by this point in Israel's history, the country had split in two after a civil war. It was Israel and Judah now. There had been many battles, many invasions, and now Babylon was currently ruling over Judah. Jeremiah prophesied to the current Judean king, Zedekiah, warning him, don't revolt against Babylon, but wait on the Lord. But Zedekiah, he turned to Egypt for help. And when the Babylonian army re returned, there was another siege on Jerusalem, and then the city was destroyed. And the city wall was destroyed, leaving it defenseless. The houses of the important officials were razed to the ground, and the temple of the Lord was destroyed as well. And then King Zedekiah's sons, they were marched out in front of him. They were executed before his very eyes, just before he had those eyes got, uh, gouged out. And then he was taken prisoner into Babylon, where he'd live out the rest of his days. This is the context of this verse. Now, what if this verse was interpreted by King Zedekiah in the way that we sometimes interpret it? For I know the plans that I have for you, 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you? What if his belief was that this would be his personal prosperity? Could he then have believed that no matter what he did, things would go the way that he expected always? How would that interpretation change as he saw the city being destroyed in front of him, as he saw the houses being burned to the ground, and even the temple of the Lord that he trusted in being desecrated? What about when his sons were marched out in front of him and executed one by one, and what about when he was blinded and taken away into captivity? Now, this verse is about Israel. Okay, let's get that straight. This verse is about Israel, and perhaps we can see this as the big I that we're talking about in the sermon title today. But more than this, this verse is about God. This verse is about God, the true I, the subject, and the one that the Bible and all of our faith actually talks about. He's the subject. He's the main character. Now, yes, this verse addresses what's happening in Israel during this moment in history, but it's not Israel's military. It's not Zedekiah's cunning. It's not a foreign ally that's going to come and get them out of this mess. It's God who takes the initiative, and it's God who makes possible what he promises. What we get so wrong when we make this verse about us, and indeed, what we get wrong when we make all of faith about us, is that it puts us directly into the shoes of people like Zedekiah. We play directly into those hands, who believe that he could force his own self-centered idea of prospering to happen. We sometimes believe it for ourselves when we make all of this all about us. We think that the way that we pray, the way that we think, the way that we serve will result in something. It puts us into this position where we're responsible for something that we cannot handle and we cannot accomplish for ourselves. And so it sets us up for self-destruction. And worse, it elevates us into the position that God should occupy, not us which makes us into God's enemy. Now, when I was preparing for a sermon series for Christmas called Peace on Earth, this isn't the feel-good sermon that I had in mind when we were thinking about peace on earth, but here's the good news. We are not the main characters, and that is good news, because we are the love of the main character. We're the one that the main character will always always save, every single time, always. You know when you watch a movie and the main character is this dashing hero, and you already know from the first time that you see him, he's gonna save everyone. There's not a member on his team that's gonna die because he will even sacrifice himself. We're not that character. We're not good enough to be that character, and that's good. We're the damsel in distress, we're the funny best friend that only knows how to make jokes and doesn't know how to save himself. We're the one that can depend on the main character to bail us out whenever we're in trouble. Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14 reads this. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. 
and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. After 70 years, God will attend to his people, restoring the relationship between them, signified by bringing them back into the land. And the promise is made here. God's people will pray. God will act. He will do it. And again, God takes the initiative and he makes possible what he promised. He is the one who makes possible what he promises. Now, how is this promise made possible? It comes through a most unexpected source in the book of Jeremiah and all the prophets, but you can read that one for yourselves. Because the focus today isn't just on the history of Israel. Though I think it's really important for you to have a good readership and an understanding of the Bible, you know, that's for you to do. But we can expand it out too. Because as much as this verse isn't about us, as much as it's about Israel, as much as it's about God, it's also about us in a way. As the Lord has promised well-being and not disaster for Israel, and as the Lord has made possible what he promises, so he promises our well-being and not disaster. And the Lord makes possible what he promises for us in this regard. We are the spiritual Israel. When it comes to the church of God, we are the spiritual Israel. And the Lord makes possible what he promises through this unexpected source, this Jesus Christ, his own son, the blood of his own son, savior of us all, but not in the form that we expected and not in the method that we had hoped. When we understand the Bible in context, we can see the true fulfillment of the promises of God through these things, through a baby born in a manger, through a man who grows up poor and destitute and is hung upon a cross to die. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ came as the fulfillment of the promise, born upon this earth as a helpless baby, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, he was resurrected, and his gospel is the gospel of peace. Now, this is a topic that's becoming increasingly relevant as we continue to grow older. I don't know if you recognize this. As the simplicity of childhood starts to fall away little by little, a child might wish for many things on his Christmas list, like I did. You might be looking at the news and thinking, I love a little peace on earth. As you grow more and more aware of wars, human atrocities, modern-day slavery, all sorts of things that are going on, you might wish for peace on earth. And so we enter into Advent. We do so in a much similar position to the historic Israel that we read about in Jeremiah, perhaps not in the physical captivity of another nation, but in very much looking for salvation from the only one who can possibly save us. Who can stop the wars that are going on? Who can stop the human rights atrocities that are going on? Only God. Advent means coming or arrival. And in this season of Advent, we have the opportunity to take our eyes off of ourselves, to look to the one that Christmas is about, the coming of this Jesus who came to deliver us. My challenge to you from today onwards until the end of December Take your eyes off of yourself. 
pray to God, turn to Jesus, and see how he brings salvation. Let's pray. Father, when we pray to you, when we think about peace on this earth, I don't know that we have a very good understanding of what that looks like. I don't know that I know or I have a a good enough imagination to picture what true peace on this earth looks like. Sometimes when I pray, I imagine a day when there's no more wars, when people are done fighting, when people are done shooting each other, killing each other, taking advantage of each other. I lack the imagination to see further than that. In fact, I lack the imagination to even picture that in my mind. Because I know in myself, when I look in the mirror, that there's a deep self-centeredness that still places me first above all else. Even when it comes to people around me, even when it comes to those closest to me, I know that I have my best interest in mind always. Father, I come before you on behalf of the people here at New Life, and I pray to you confessing this, asking, Lord, that you would help all of us to confess these things as well, that we be able to lay bare before you and before one another the sins of our hearts, the selfishness, that we might repent and turn back to you. We long for a true peace that transcends all understanding. Even before it happens on this earth, we want it in our hearts first. Would you quieten our minds that they might no longer desire after all sorts of things on this earth that will not bring us true satisfaction? Would you help us, Lord, to have a calm and a peace as we seek to hold on to you. We want to know what it means to yearn for you. We want to know what it means to love you. We don't want it just for Christmas, but we want it all year round, every day, every night. Help us, Lord, to meditate upon you, upon your word, and to find peace. Father, may I be so bold as to pray for these people, for myself, that you would shake up our hearts, that the things that we love the most that are not you, that you would help us, Lord, to see them for what they are, even if they're good things. Help us, Lord, to lay them on the altar before you. Help us, Lord, to be self-sacrificial, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and walk daily. May it be, Lord, that we hold everything with open hands except the cross of Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that he didn't even hold his life so dear to him, but in fact, he held the love that he has for you. And now, that translates to the love that you have for us. We wanna know what it feels like to be your son, to be your daughter, to truly receive the love of our Father God, and to be changed by this in a way that is undeniable, in a way where when we sing these songs, it means something. 
They're not just words. They're not just things that we've sung day in, day out. But they're praises to you, our holy God, the only one who can save us. Change us. We ask you to change us because we can't do it for ourselves. Help us to be a repentant people and help us, Lord, to love you because we don't know what love is without you. We need your help to love you and we need your help to love even ourselves and one another. So would you do this, God? We want for a true peace here upon this earth. As we reside on this earth, would you give us a peace that transcends all understanding as we love you? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.